This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, this is a special edition of Power and Politics. I'm David Cochrane in Ottawa, live from the foyer of the House of Commons. The federal government has revealed its outlook for the Canadian economy, an outlook filled with uncertainty at a time when Canadians are already feeling deep anxiety. The foundation of our fall economic statement is our responsible fiscal plan. We are taking care not to feed inflation by carefully targeting new investments towards the priorities of Canadians. There is some new spending and tax cuts in today's fall economic statement, worth about $21 billion over the next six years, but it's limited and it's focused in an effort to not make matters worse for the economy. This is what the Liberals are trying not to stoke higher, inflation or the rate of cost increases. That rate has been gradually falling since 2022, but is still not expected to reach the 2% target anytime soon. Now, high inflation has meant high interest rates, and that means low growth. Canada is expected now to avoid a recession, but GDP is averaging just 1% growth this year, with barely any growth at all next year. That adds up to bad news on the job front. The employment rate is expected to jump a full percentage point by next year. Now, the federal government has held the line on its deficit. It stands at $40 billion for the current year, the same as what was projected in March. But the deficits are larger than expected in every following year. Now, what's not in this document? Any mention of pharmacare, a key demand of the NDP in its confidence and supply agreement with the Liberals. Also missing, a path back to balance, something the Conservatives have long called for. Prices up. Rent up, debt up, taxes up, time's up. Common sense conservatives will vote non-confidence on this disgusting scheme. What the Liberal government has announced is not a budget, obviously. It's not even a mini-budget. It is a micro-budget. It does not meet the urgency of what Canadians are going through. Okay, it's going to be a bit of a topsy-turvy show, so we're starting with the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister of Canada, Christia Freeland. There she is. She joins us now. Minister, thanks for taking the time. It is great to be here with you. I, I know on the big financial days, like Budget Day and the Fall Economic Statement Day, governments like to present a real air of confidence. But I look through yes. the projections, I look through the caveats in this document, I see a lot of anxiety about a lot of uncertainty. I would agree with the point about uncertainty in the world and look I think that is a truth universally acknowledged and frankly pretty obvious to all Canadians there is a lot of uncertainty in the world but where I disagree with you David is I'm actually you know in a appropriately humble way really confident about Canada um, this is a challenging world, but there is truly no country in the world that is better positioned to get through this uncertainty than our own, and not just get through it, but thrive. And I just want to cite one number for you, um, which was in my budget, my uh, fall economic statement speech, and that is this year, in the first six months of this year, Canada was the third most attractive investment destination in the world. And that wasn't per capita. That was just total sum of money. Right. Per capita, the best. Now, that might seem kind of esoteric to people, but what that's saying is the world is choosing to invest its money in Canada precisely because they, the world has that confidence in Canada, and I do too. But if you look at the projections in your budget on the base scenario, which in itself is is a bit pessimistic, averaging about 1% growth this year when most of that growth has probably already happened in the first part of the year and barely above zero, 0.4 next year with unemployment going up to about 6.5%. You sandwich all of that with all the mortgage renewals that are coming up. And you, the, the potential for a real shock to the economy there is increased mortgage payments take money out. There are fewer people working. That takes money out. This looks to me as an enormous short to medium term challenge for the economy in the country. So the base scenario, as you know very well, is not my forecast or the Department of Finance. It's yeah. private sector economists, which, by the way, is like such a great thing about Canada that you can't cook the books. It's based on what the private sector judges. And I actually read that as 
really optimistic because what the private sector economists are saying is we will avoid the post-COVID recession that was pretty much universally forecast. What they're saying is we're going to do something that a lot of people thought was impossible, which is have a soft landing after this time of extraordinary economic volatility. So I see that as a positive. And the other thing that I see as tremendously positive is the long-term fundamental strengths of Canada. What are those strengths? We have an economic plan that is investing in jobs and growth. You see the foreign investment coming in. You see that industrial transformation. And we're investing in people. We're investing in building homes for a growing country. Those are all great things for Canadians. The, the new housing measures, though. I, I know the housing accelerator is starting to uh, bear some fruit. And I know you reduced the GST off-purpose built rental construction earlier this year, expanding that to co-op in this. But the, the big sort of headline pre-story before today was the $15 billion in loans uh, for, for rental construction. That doesn't start till 2025, 2026. Neither does the new billion dollars for low-income and affordable housing. Why, with the needs being so urgent right now, why is it a couple of years before those programs even come on stream? Well, because those are existing programs, and those are, being added, to, those are being added to programs that are already there and are already delivering. And, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I was in Toronto at an announcement of 2,600 apartments being built across Toronto thanks to the Rental Construction Financing Initiative. And it was great. It was great to see those homes being built. And the builders there said to me, this is a great program. We love it. It really works. It is getting us to build rental rather than condos because it creates the financial incentive. But you know what they said to me, David? They said, what we're worried about is the program is so popular, it's going to run out. And I couldn't say to them then, but I'm glad to say to you guys today, we heard you and we are topping up that program, which is working and delivering for Canadians. Okay, so, so these top-ups, you're looking at deficits uh, in uh, all the out years, about $40 billion this year, the high 30s next year. Uh, before there's any new spending plans uh, announced. Debt servicing is about $45 billion this year. It's over 10%, so more than 10 cents of every dollar goes to debt servicing. It's going to go to $60 billion by the end of this forecast. That's two militaries. That's what, you know, double what we pay for the military. How do you get that under control and still respond to these needs? Because eventually interest can get to a point where it exceeds too many things. Um, well, David, we do have it under control, but I would say that the two parts of your question point to the balance that we have struck in this fall economic update. So we believe both that we need to be investing seriously in Canada and Canadians, we need to invest in housing, we need to invest in the economy, and we're doing it, but we do understand the importance of fiscal responsibility, and that's why we actually have the lowest debt and deficit in the G7, why we have a AAA credit rating. And what this fall economic statement shows is we have an economic plan which is fiscally responsible. It does mean, David, that our resources aren't infinite, that we can't do every single thing that every person would like. But what it also shows is we understand that you cannot cut, cut, cut at a time when Canadians need investments in housing, investments in the economic capacity of the country. That's what we're doing. Okay, and the one other issue that's not here is pharmacare. And I know there was no expectation that we'd see a fully formed pharmacare program in the fall economic statement. But when I look at what you're saying about sustainability, keeping debt costs low, and preserving the AAA credit rating, which you drive home in this uh, economic statement as of critical importance. Can you deliver the Pharmacare program the New Democrats are demanding and keep Canada's AAA credit rating? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much um, for being such uh, a good and understanding reader of the fall economic statement because you really heard what I wanted to say. Thanks a lot. And I, I mean that like okay. I mean that no, totally no, no, sincerely. No, like, like that message was important. Um, on uh, the full suite of SACA measures, 
my colleague Mark Holland is working very carefully, thoughtfully, and constructively with our partners. We have a written agreement with the NDP. We're following that agreement. And I want to point out that that agreement and our promises that we are keeping are delivering for Canadians. Just this year, remember, just back to February, we made a $200 billion investment in healthcare. A really big deal. And we are continuing to deliver in this fall economic statement this year in this fiscal track on dental care, which is transformative for Canadians. And I'm actually really glad that we're able to do that. So you can make an economic argument that the housing money can be deficit financed because increased housing allows for increased immigration, which allows for increased economic activity, the investment tra tax credits uh, for the, uh, the green transition. You can make an argument it can be deficit financed because at least economic activity. Pharmacare, I would make both those arguments, but, David. I agree with you. But Pharmacare is 100% an entitlement program. And I don't say that pejoratively. There's no economic lift necessarily from that. Can you deficit finance something that Mr. Singh, who's going to be sitting in this chair in a few minutes, has asked for and keep that credit ready? Or is the economic reality that universal single-pay Pharmacare is just not affordable in Canada with the fiscal track you laid out today? We have a written agreement with the NDP, and we have really good working relationships. Uh, my colleague, Mark Holland, is working carefully and thoughtfully on this, and I would say constructively. We're really glad to be able to deliver the things we're delivering today, and that includes massive and really valuable investments in healthcare. And I want to point out the dental care which is being rolled out today and is transforming people's lives is fully baked into that fiscal trap that you have mentioned. But I don't do this very often. I do want to underscore something that was embedded in your question. And that is that the key investments that you see in this fall economic statement truly are investments in Canada's economic growth. And they are fiscally responsible because they're investments in our economic capacity. Early learning and childcare is an investment exactly like that too. And that's what our economic plan is about. It's about investing in Canadians responsibly so that we have the resources to continue to invest in Canadians. So just one last final question, if I may. Uh, SACA, as you call it, the Supply and Confidence Agreement. Yes, runs, sorry, runs. sorry for using a political acronym that's disgusting and but, terrible. But, I apologize to all Canadians. It, it, I it, hate the acronyms myself. I, I truly do. Right. Well, it, it runs to 2025 if it holds. If you look at the fiscal track, if you look at the job numbers, if you look at the economic projections that leads up to that, You've got a rough patch of runway ahead of you before you seek re-election if the normal political calendar holds. How difficult is it going to be for you to kind of turn things around politically and economically to put you in a more competitive position in 2025 than you are today? Again, I, um, I obviously agree with you about the numbers, um, but I disagree with you about the gloss on them. I, you know, if, if we had been sitting here, if we had a time machine, and we could go back to the spring of 2021, depths of COVID, or let's, let's even go back to the summer of 2020, depths of COVID, deepest recession since the Great Depression, 17% economic contraction, 3 million people losing their job, and someone had said to you and me, three years from now, we're actually going to have a soft landing. We will have a million more Canadians employed. We will have no recession. I think people would say, David, Christia, you guys are dreaming. That is going to be impossible to pull off. But that is the projection which is there. And the other thing I do want to say to Canadians is, our Canada's core fundamentals are so strong right now. They're strong because we are a country that is able to grow at a time when everyone else is facing demographic challenges. We're able to attract immigrants. We need to build the homes for those immigrants, and we're doing it. And also, we are winning in the biggest economic transformation of the global economy since the Industrial Revolution. This is great news, if, and thank you very much, Canada. If you use that time machine and told them what their mortgage payments would be, how do you think they'd react to that? I mean, these are the other issues that are that are. I, and, you know, okay, we're supposed to end, but I'm, gonna, I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful that you raised the issue of mortgages because that is very deeply on my mind. 
Um, and that is why we have in this fall economic statement uh, for the first time the Canadian Mortgage Charter. And you know, if you will um, permit me, when I was uh, when I was a journalist. Um, we had this feature uh, in the FT that we would call news you can use. So this is the news you can use moment and I would say to everyone who has a mortgage and is concerned about renewing their mortgage, please look up the Canadian Mortgage Charter because this tells you what you can expect from your bank when you're renewing your mortgage. I think it's going to provide people with real relief. That's why it's there. Thank you for mentioning it, David. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll give you some relief uh, and your staff some relief as I'll let you go. I've kept you longer than time. Thank you so much, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christopher Freeland. We appreciate you taking the time today. Great talking to you. And now it's uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who has joined me now to talk, give us his take uh, on the fall <laughs> e uh, economic statement. You said in your uh, scrum earlier, you said this isn't a mini budget, it's a micro budget. Uh, I think that's by design, but you think it's a, it's a, it's a failure of this particular uh, statement. What's your reaction overall to today? I would say just in the Prime Minister's own words, he's been referencing the idea that we need this wartime effort to deal with the housing crisis. I agree. I've heard from people saying, I'm afraid if I lose my home, I'll be homeless because there's nowhere else to rent. There's just nothing affordable out there. People are saying, people, we've heard stories, I've met with people that are good, they have good jobs and are living in their van because they can't find place. There's no vacancy in some areas. Right. So given that seriousness, what the government's responded to is just so little and not rising to the occasion or to the urgency of what we're up against. So the housing accelerator is knocking out deals with a bunch of municipalities. They've lifted the GST off of rental construction, expanded it to co-op. They're topping up the, the funds to give you know, uh, favorable loans to developers. What more can they do in a document like this with the warnings coming from the central bank and economists everywhere that you've got to be careful not to make it easier for interest rates to go back up? A couple of quick things. First off, the main focus of this Liberal government has been to incentivize the private building, but they've not focused on affordability. So if there's any mention of affordability in terms of not-for-profit housing or cooperative housing, that's something New Democrats have pushed for. But on the measures of affordability, the measures don't start for years down the road. And that's my major critique. For affordable housing, for a lot of people I speak to who are saying, I can't afford the rent, you could build more uh, condos, luxury condos, that's not going to help me out. Build 20 more of them in my community, I'm not going to build it for that. But for affordable housing, this government's focus is to have money that's years down the road. That shows a lack of really urgency to deal with people what they're struggling right now. But I've heard you say that you want the government, any money the government sort of puts into housing, go almost 100% or overwhelmingly towards affordable housing and not really enable more higher income or more luxury housing, as you call it. But those people are looking to buy too. And if they don't have a supply at the higher end of the market, they're going to compete at the lower end of the market and make it even more difficult for low and working income Canadians. So don't we need a more comprehensive housing policy that has a wide range of units coming onto the market and governments at all levels have to play a role in that? No doubt. We absolutely need, there's not one silver bullet. But what's missing in the approach is an approach of affordability. That's what's missing entirely. There is, seems to be this idea that the market got us into this problem, the market can get it. But how do they do that? Is it they just start building houses and spending money doing that? Because if, if government's money starts choosing demand that way, uh, we're going to run into an interest rate problem, which exacerbates the affordability issue for everybody, are we not? That was my other point. Uh, we've spoken with the experts that say there's absolutely spending we need to cut. We should not be spending hundreds of millions of dollars on outsourcing contracts. That's something that the government's made a big mistake on. We shouldn't be spending billions of dollars on fossil fuel subsidies, public money going to highly profitable oil and gas companies. But spending money to build homes that are affordable would actually fight inflation. One of the major drivers of inflation right now is that housing costs too much. So investing in building homes that are affordable using public land, federal land, only for affordable homes would be an approach that would be inflation fighting. It would not contribute to inflation. I, I know the supply and confidence agreement, the conditions of it are to lay the framework that would allow for the creation of national pharmacare. You have said you want a single-payer, universal uh, national pharmacare plan. If you look at the fiscal track the government put out, with the deficits, where they are, uh, with the concerns they're raising about sustaining a AAA credit rating, do you think that's achievable based on where the country is in this moment of elevated interest rates and, and persistently high deficits and, and debt servicing costs that's going to soon be $60 billion a year? We can do it in a prudent way, and that's uh, responsible approaches. So first, we're saying, let's lay out the framework. 
That's not a money cost in the first year. It's laying out the legal framework. Next, let's look at the formulary. What medication should be covered? Let's lay out that plan. And then let's look at the bulk purchasing plan. How can we purchase bulk to bring down the cost? We're not suggesting we need to spend billions of dollars tomorrow, but we are saying let's lay out a plan to get to a point where we have universal medication coverage. But by coverage. when? Because if you look at the fiscal track, like we're looking at a $40 billion deficit next fiscal year before any new spending is even there, and that's assuming we don't have a scenario to the negative. So what is the horizon? I mean, it's certainly not going to be anything by 2025. Does that then become the issue you fight the election on next time? Or when do you potentially see this happening? Because the math doesn't look like it's going to be quick. Well, our agreement lays out the next couple of years. Right. So our agreement takes us to the end of 2025 and says that we need the full plan in place by the end of 2025. And then we can look to implementation. Implementation is going to require working with provinces, not all provinces might sign on at all at once. So there will be a rollout that will be measured. But let's also acknowledge that this is, on experts' opinion, a cost savings measure as well. The PBO put out their analysis that this would certainly save money for provinces, territories, even the federal government. Right, but, but it would not be a net savings on the federal government's balance sheet, obviously, which is the quite, I may save provinces for sure, but Ottawa would take on, uh, on an extra cost. It would take right. on a cost, but yeah. even that cost itself, if you look at the long-term benefits that weren't even factored in, but the idea that if someone takes their insulin and doesn't have kidney failure, and doesn't end up on dialysis, there's certainly a savings that, that there. Not, that's not even factored into the PBO's analysis. There, there's about uh, $20.8 billion in, we'll call it, new spending and tax cuts because there's the GST relief for, for rental housing construction over a six fiscal year period, so spread out over quite a bit of time. Some of the housing measures you talked about, the extra billion for affordable housing, the $15 billion in loans for rental housing doesn't elevate until 2025. There is a new mortgage charter that's been promised here to give some protection to people who may find themselves underwater when it comes to renewing their mortgages. There's a lifting of the GST on, on psychotherapy and counseling services, a promise to crack down on, on junk fees more broadly. What do you see in those measures to sort of help Canadians who are struggling with this high cost of living issue? Well, on the mental health services, it's something we've called for getting the GST off of that. So that's a measure that we support. Obviously, a small measure, but one we've supported. The idea of putting in, getting rid of junk fees, of course, something that we should be doing. The measure, the charter that we spoke about, really are, are codifying practices that are already in place, that we're already encouraged to, to be in place. So that's not a net change. It just kind of codifies what's already happening. What we're saying is, given how bad things are, the government should be using this opportunity to invest significantly and seriously in building homes that are affordable. That is the inflation-fighting measure. It is required. And given the demands, given the urgency, the high population, the population growth that we need and we support, we don't have enough homes to house the people in our country, and we don't have homes that are affordable. That is not being met with this budget. And again, Canadians are left feeling frustrated by the delay. Well, it's not a budget by design, right? It's not even a mini budget because they want to get away, they say, from the big budget in, say, March and then a smaller budget in November. They want it to be one document with a truly a fall economic statement, an update in the fall. What do you make of that shift? Because that is a, a, a reversal of the pattern that has been at play here really since COVID destroyed the economic rhythms of the country. Well, I'm not concerned about uh, the changing of the rhythm or the right. changing of the approach. What I am concerned is given how serious housing is, this is not something that is a run-of-the-mill problem. We're up against a very serious concern. And that seriousness is not being met with the government's response. And I think that should have given the government some alarm after seeing how bad things are, right. that they should have then taken this opportunity to say, okay, we are gonna take this seriously, we're making serious investments to build affordable homes. They've not done that now. Okay, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. All right, we're gonna to continue to get reaction from the fall economic statement. Joining me now is Jean-Denis Garand, he's the Bloc Québécois National Revenue Critic. Mr. Garand, it's good to see you again. Good evening. Um, I saw your leader, he wasn't too happy about the measures here today. What, what's your number one criticism of what the government rolled out? Well, number one criticism is that uh, this is a disappointment because it looks like the government doesn't know what an emergency is. We're facing a number of emergencies at the moment and homelessness, housing with our medias, with our small businesses. And usually when you uh, do an economic statement, they're supposed to have new measures uh, in the statement. And looks like they could have waited for the budget in March because uh, there's, 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 there's nothing new in there. 
There, well, there are a few small measures, but certainly not on the priorities you were talking yeah. about. I heard Mr. Blanchet talking about the lack of extra change for the Canada Emergency Business Account, yeah. the CIBA loans, which is not a level of forgiveness they want, but also some criticism of the lack of support f for media, because I know this is a big issue in Quebec, where TVA has, has, has really had da major downsizing um, in its workforce. There is an increase in the labor tax credit for journalism. You say that's not enough for your sector, particularly in Quebec. Well, look, I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, TVA has attracted a lot of attention for sure, but it's also about the smaller newspapers, smaller medias in all of our regions. Uh, uh, we need an emergency relief fund right now, pending what's going to, pending to see what's going to happen with C18, and, and it's an emergency. That's part of the problem here, though. Uh, C18 has gotten people kicked off of various platforms, and it's affecting traffic and maybe affecting some revenue. Well, the well, the problem is that uh, there is a revenue problem with those uh, with those uh, more traditional media's, uh, right. partly because uh, those online platforms they take their material without paying for it, and uh, uh, while we wait for. Uh, for the government to find a more permanent solution, we can't let our medias die. So uh, you said off the top, uh, the government, it doesn't look like the government knows what an emergency is. Yeah. You talked about housing and homelessness. Of the new spending in here, there, are, there is tax relief for rental and housing construction. There is some money to help with, with loans. And you've seen the housing accelerator and other announcements. And, and Quebec, just a, a well, what I said, dollar deal. What I said is that I don't yeah. see why they've done an economic statement to, to, to tell us they that. Could have just waited. Because there are all measures that have been, had been already announced. The GST had been announced so, uh, already announced it's there's nothing new for housing now you're going to tell us that there is new spending but it's an emergency we need to start the projects now we need to cut red tape they're imposing new conditions uh, upon provinces and there's absolutely nothing new bef be before 25 26 Right. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, there is a housing accelerator and the other measures that have been done, and the GST rebate is being applied to co-op yeah. housing. So yeah. there's some measures there. But yeah. uh, it, it, we I'm, just sa I'm, I'm saying they're not new. Uh, they, they have done something interesting with GST. They uh, tabled a measure uh, uh, in Parliament without giving us the details because they were not ready. So now they're putting the details in the economic statement while telling us that there's something new in there. Uh, the, the reality is that they were not ready a few weeks ago, and now they're giving us the details. Detail, but this is not, not a new measure that didn't require an economic statement. There's something I want to read you here, though. This yeah. is on page 25 of the fall economic statement for those who are reading along at home. And it's about breaking down barriers to internal labor mobility for tradespeople to build houses, but also healthcare workers. And they say they want to leverage federal transfers and other funding to encourage provinces and territories to cut red tape. It sounds Once like a, more. I, I, Once I, more. I have the block in Once more. I have to ask. It sounds like what they're doing with the housing accelerator, they may try to do with interprovincial trade barriers. Is that your read of it? What's your reaction to that? The best way to not spend and to not help people that are in the field, the best way to do that is to start conflicts with the provinces and especially with Quebec. Now they're, they're, they're saying that they're gonna, they might withhold health transfers because of that. But they have been saying that at every budget or almost every budget for the last 20 years. You have experience, you know that. So there's nothing new in there. There's nothing constructive the, the, in there. The sense I get from the, the government officials I spoke with about this today, because I saw it said the same, had the same reaction as you, it sounds like it's going to be more like the housing accelerator where there's extra there for you if you do these things. So they will use federal money to help reduce trade barriers the way they redo, they change zoning regulations in municipalities. Is that look, an acceptable approach look, to you? The problem with that is that the way they're saying it is just, it's just like they think that the provinces don't want to build housing. Like the provinces are against it and that they, they need that to build housing. The problem is red tape and conditions. Quebec is the only province that, ha that have had permanent uh, programs for building social housings for housing for years and years and years. But you have to work for that? I mean, could Ontario trade people go across the bridge and build affordable housing in Gatineau without any issues? I mean, well, isn't that been, one of the challenges? Well, some progress has been done over the last couple of years between Quebec and Ontario, especially right. especially here in the Outaouais region, but the, the, way they're do, the, the, the way they want to do it is not constructive and it's going to harm progress, I think. So, uh, so, so, so the problem that we have is that they tell provinces it's almost as, as they were telling provinces, we don't believe that you want to build housing and we want you to build housing, so we're going to tell you what to do while, uh, at a time while 
uh, provinces have been, uh, Quebec have been doing it for years and years and years. I mean, how can that work? Well, the reality is, in a lot of cases, it's municipal governments who have gotten in the way of housing because, you know, of NIMBYism and people not wanting certain types of developments in their neighborhoods. This seems to have done away with some of that. In, in and, so, and so now they believe that threatening them <laughs> is going to make them build houses. I mean, you see, it, it, it's sense. So you're telling the, the, the so you're saying we're going to ask provinces uh, to threaten municipalities to, and, and, and how is that supposed to make them work constructively? No, no, how is that supposed I, I mean, to they gave municipalities a bunch of money for housing if they, if they, if they met the conditions to change the zoning. That's what we're seeing, though, though Quebec has its own deal. That, that but is, that's that is not an emergency response at all. No, no, fair enough. Yeah. All right, Jean-Denis Garon, the Bloc Quebecois National Revenue Critic. Thanks so much for your time and your action. Pleasure. I appreciate it. There are some new measures for Canadians in today's fall economic statement, but spending is certainly restrained in this update, and perhaps here's why. The cost of Canada's debt is skyrocketing, skyrocketing thanks to high interest rates. In fact, it has more than doubled since the early days of the pandemic, from $20 billion in debt servicing to $46.5 billion a year. Those debt servicing charges are now among the costliest items in the federal budget, more than 10 cents of every dollar they take in. To further break down the federal government's fall economic statement, I'm joined now by Jimmy Jean, the chief economist at Desjardins, and Armin Yalnesian, the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers at the Atkinson uh, Foundation. Uh, it's good to speak with you both. Jimmy, let's start with you. How does what we saw today uh, compare to your expectations when we last spoke last night? Well, no big surprise on my end. Uh, for sure, the uh, adverse economic developments since the spring budget, uh, we've seen two major uh, uh, economic headwinds. The first is uh, GDP growth, uh, which has basically flatlined. And uh, in the meantime, inflation is decelerating. So that's already a bad combination for government revenues. And then on top of that, you add uh, the fact that the government has been grappling, as you mentioned, with a sharp increase in interest uh, payments, and that's expected to uh, continue further as we go into the outlook. So this means that even before making any new policy moves, the government was already facing substantial deficit deterioration over the horizon. Uh, they uh, had they were benefiting from a windfall last year. The, the revenues were revised up, uh, but you know everything was 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 spent basically, and that's just speaks to uh, the uh, number, the multiplication of very pressing issues, uh, and especially housing, uh, where they, they really had to deliver. So uh, in this kind of environment, it's really going to be difficult to, uh, and, and especially if growth is weak, it's going to be uh, difficult to prevent those deficit deteriorations. Uh, but the key here is the fiscal anchor. They reintroduced something that looks like a fiscal anchor. Uh, but uh, we've heard that story before, so um, you know we have to see the execution of it. Armin, uh, what, what's your high-level takeaway uh, from what we saw from the Deputy Prime Minister today? Well, it feels like it's National uh, Rodney Dangerfield Day. I'm dating myself, but it's like she can't get no respect. She can't get no respect from the provinces, from opposition parties to the left and the right of her. And the fact is what she's delivered today looks an awful lot like what she delivered last year. In the wake of a 40-year spike in inflation, it was basically a steady-as-she-goes budget. And we're going to focus on deficit reduction. We're going to be fiscally responsible, and we're going to keep our powder dry. Well, a year into this affordability crisis, with more and more people worried that they can keep a roof over their heads, and if they lose it, there's no place cheaper to go to. Same thing. Same story. So to uh, uh, Jimmy Jean's point, the fiscal anchor is we're going to cut that deficit in half in four years. And we're going to do it not because we can do it through transfers to provinces which are going up, and transfers to persons which are going up, we're going to do it through the lever we have, which is direct spending. Right. And that means we're going to get less spending as this emergency, this housing emergency, rises. And they've already said steady as she goes on immigration. So it's like, it's a do-nothing update. It's really frustrating. Well, just that, uh, if we can put the deficit numbers back on the screen, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to direct to the control room here uh, from the chair uh, to, to reinforce our means point that, that the deficit in these projections will cut in half over five years, going from $40 billion in the current fiscal year down to about $18 billion by 2028-2029. Uh, but, Jimmy, that assumes no new measures, no new spending, no nothing. And I don't think we can credibly rely on that in terms of, there's, there's the fiscal track, in terms of getting things uh, down to that sort of level. What's your read on it? 
Well, it's even worse when you consider that uh, there there are also expectations on the revenue side that uh, involve um, you know very uh, hard to quantify uh, sources of, uh, of of revenue uh, and, and savings that they they said they would be making in the last budget, and we haven't seen uh, the color of it. So we there's a lot of uh, you know there's a big leap of fate of fate we have to take in uh, believing in in those numbers. Uh, we're going to have to hope that the economy undergoes uh, a very uh, brief recession. This is what we expect. Uh, they, they they expect something very, uh, you know, the weakness to be very temporary as well. Right. Uh, because we're going to need that growth. We're going to need uh, GDP to uh, to improve and interest rates to, to go down. Hopefully, if inflation uh, gets, uh, gets uh, under control. And that will really be what will boost those, those top line uh, numbers. Because otherwise, on the spending front, uh, it's going to be very complicated because you're in an environment where there's the not just the uh, multiplication, but the complexity uh, of uh, the various economic challenges, be it climate change, being uh, housing affordability or homelessness. Those are issues that, um, you know, have been intensified in terms of complexity and the stakes at hand, particularly for the long term. So it's going to be very difficult and not to to intervene or, or, or not to uh, be tempted to address those uh, in the future. So uh, if we don't have uh, revenues and if we don't invest in our productivity to be able to afford all these uh, ambitions, uh, then, you know, the bottom line is going to reflect that. Right. And, and they are continuing with the investment tax credits. We get a pretty clear high line, uh, sorry, timeline of when those will come into force uh, in this fall economic statement to help deal with that green transition. But, you know, Armin, you called this kind of a, a do-nothing update. And I wonder if that's partly by design. A lot of the measures they have in here to, to deal, well, I don't wonder. It's pretty obvious it is by design. The, the stuff they're trying to do through the Competition uh, Bureau, for example, is cost-free, and they hope that will drive down costs. But but it, it, hanging over all of this, he wasn't referencing the budget, but it feels like Tiff Macklem just has enormous weight on the fall economic statement, the way Joe Biden and his Inflation Reduction Act carried enormous weight in the budget earlier this year. It seems like they wanted to do nothing to give anybody an excuse to hike an interest rate anywhere. That may be true, but it's not federal spending that is driving inflation. And that's a storyline that Pierre Poilievre has been uh, dominating airwaves with. What Pierre Poilievre would like to see is axing the tax, but that's where virtually every... Every analysis shows that it's the provincial and the municipal levels that are axing the taxes, that are actually inflating spending and creating overheating. What the feds could be doing is adding to affordable housing stock, which the market will never deliver on. The math does not work. The only way we get affordable housing is when governments actually invest. And if I was Christian Freeland, I'd be steamed. You know, every year, the province of Ontario gets more and more money. And this year, it announced in its own uh, fall economic statement a surprise uh, deficit of $5.6 billion that didn't exist seven, uh, seven months ago. So, you know, somebody is taking the money, asking for more, and then not even using it. It is enormously frustrating to the citizens of this country who are relying on their governments to have their back. Or, or, or Jimmy, in the case of Ontario, they're doing things like cutting the gas tax uh, or extending cuts to the gas tax. And this seems to me the kind of inflationary spending that Tiff Macklem has been warning against. So, so right now, in terms of the role government spending writ large, uh, Jimmy, is playing in this issue. How much of it is the federal? How much of it is provincial? Where, where is the biggest perpetrator uh, on this side of things right now? Yeah, right. I, I think uh, there's, you know, the provincial has, uh, provincial governments have a, a big responsibility. And so that's why it was ironic to see them write letters to uh, uh, Macklin to, to lead him to not to uh, raise interest rates uh, back in October, uh, because, you know, uh, some of it is, is their responsibility. But again, uh, it's, it's very difficult when people are struggling out there not to intervene. It's, it's your responsibility. These are, this is your constituency. So, uh, it's a, it's a, a puzzle that's going to be very difficult to solve 
if we don't have the income coming from uh, stronger productivity growth. There's simply no other way around. That's going to be really the ultimate solution to, to all of this, to be able to afford, to be able to support uh, a quality of life for, for uh, our citizens, and including uh, by having sufficient housing. Uh, you know, you have to pay for all of this, and it's just more difficult to, to do when the economy is slowing down and when interest rates are, are higher. And remember, uh, higher interest rates, uh, you know, the higher that the, the debt service cost that means it's money that's not going to uh, housing affordability it's not going to climate change it's not going to tax cuts so uh, you know the best way you can really uh, prevent that uh, from from happening or limit the uh, uh, the deterioration on that front is really to uh, make sure that you have the least amount of debt as possible and we know we've been in that played in that movie before it's it's very painful so that's why despite the urgency of the needs we still have to be there and warn against uh, you know, spending too much, uh, or or not having some sort of uh, of anchor uh, before it, it is too late. Yeah, uh, more than uh, ten cents of every dollar going in now um, pays for the servicing on the debt, which I know is a ceiling. People like David Dodge had warned uh, they should not break through. Uh, Armin, just a, a final thought for you, because yeah, we're running out of time. Yeah, you know, I'm really struck at the study as she goes approach of the federal government, given these multiple crises we're facing. Uh, Mark Miller, just before the fall economic statement, said we're just going to keep pouring people in, no limits on international students and temporary foreign workers, and sticking with their original plan on bringing in up. To to half a million more immigrants. But, you know, there's way more temporary residents coming in than permanent residents in the form of immigrants. So we're going to stick to that, and we're going to stick to not spending more than we were already spending on housing. We are in trouble. We can't thread this needle because, to Jimmy's point, the only way we've been growing our revenues is by adding people and stirring. That is how we've been doing it, not through productivity growth. And you can grow an economy, you can grow revenues by adding people, but you need a place to put them, and we don't have a solution for that. Yeah, uh, that is probably the biggest challenge we face right now. I, I want to thank you both for your insights. Jimmy Jean, the chief economist at Desjardins, and Armin Yelnizi, the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers at the Atkinson Foundation. Thank you both. A busy day for you both, so we appreciate you making the time for our audience. Thank you. Pleasure. The federal government has updated its outlook for the Canadian economy, an outlook filled with uncertainty at a time when Canadians are already feeling deep anxiety. The foundation of our fall economic statement is our responsible fiscal plan. We are taking care not to feed inflation by carefully targeting new investments towards the priorities of Canadians. There is some new spending and tax cuts in today's fall economic statement, worth about $21 billion over the next six years. But it's limited in its focus in an effort, the government says, to not make matters worse for the economy. This is what they're trying not to stoke higher, inflation or the rate of cost increases. That rate has been gradually falling since 2022, but is still not expected to reach the 2% target anytime soon. And high inflation has meant high interest rates, and that means low growth. Canada is expected to avoid a recession, but GDP is averaging just 1% growth this year with barely any growth next year. And all of that adds up to bad news on the job front. The employment rate is expected to jump a full percentage point by next year. The federal government has largely held the line on the deficit this year, stands at $40 billion, the same as what was projected in March, but the deficits are larger than expected in every following year. And what's not in this document? Well, any mention of Pharmacare, a key demand of the NDP in its supply and confidence agreement with the Liberals, and also missing a path back to balance, something the Conservatives have long called for. Prices up, rent up, debt up, taxes up, time's up. Common sense Conservatives will vote non-confidence on this disgusting stand. What the Liberal government has announced is not a budget, obviously, it's not even a mini-budget, it is a micro-budget. It does not meet the urgency of what Canadians are going through. Okay, not a lot of surprises in the federal reaction, so we're going to get some provincial reaction to the economic statement. Alan McMaster is the Minister of Finance for the Nova Scotia government, which is the chair of the Council of the Federation this year, which speaks for the Premiers. Minister McMaster, thanks for taking the time. Good to be with you, David. Uh, your province, like a lot of provinces, you're facing a housing crunch right now. Uh, do, the measures outlined here today by the Deputy Prime Minister, do you see them helping the situation in Nova Scotia? 
Well, their focus seems to be on uh, making access to credit uh, easier to access credit. And I think that question is probably best asked to the builders themselves. But one of the things we see here in our province is, uh, is the impact of labor shortages. And one of the things we've done recently is we announced a program of $100 million. This is for a province of just over a million people, uh, which is focused on improving uh, labor uh, so that we have better productivity right. because productivity as I think a lot of people would agree is is one of the solutions to address the issue of inflation uh, and of course uh, the productivity can help us build the housing that we need for the people that we need to be here working here um, right. so yes so, so one of those challenges you mentioned, there's, there's a labor crunch on this too, right, of just getting enough skilled workers to be able to do this. And the government says it's going to try to address that in this fall economic statement, saying it wants to advance the next phase to remove the barriers to internal labor mobility to allow skilled workers to travel between provinces to build these houses. But it says here, Minister, they want to do that by leveraging federal transfers and other funding to encourage provinces to cut red tape. How do you read that, leveraging federal transfers and other funding to get you to change provincial regulations? Well, from a big picture perspective, I can see why the federal government would see, you know, labor mobility is a good thing. Uh, what we don't want to see from a provincial perspective is people leaving our province maybe to go to another province. Right. Uh, we're interested in trying to get people like uh, new immigrants into our province. We want them to stay here. Um, so we're, we're trying to, like, one of the things we did with our labor strategy is we're trying to create more pathways into the skilled trades for newcomers, and we're also trying to improve the retention. A lot of people go into skilled trades, they don't stick with it. Uh, so we're introducing incentives because we want them to come out in a skilled trade and able to contribute. If we're more interested in that than we are in trying to ensure there's mobility across the country, we want to get people into our province, and we want to keep them here because we need them. But there's been this jurisdictional challenge, and, and your premier was on our show talking about this, and that uh, the way they've used the housing accelerator, to, they've used the federal purse to force change in zoning regulations in, in, uh, in municipalities. Uh, it sounds like, based on the, the plain reading of that and what I've heard from officials here in Ottawa, that they may seek to do the same sort of thing here, uh, to try to have federal money on the table to get provinces to, to liberalize intra-provincial uh, trade barriers. Do you think that's something you're willing to entertain? Well, I think, again, for us, our goal is to get people into the province. Not that we're trying to restrict people from leaving the province, but one of the trends we've seen in Nova Scotia is when we get people uh, who are new Canadians coming here, they often end up in places like Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. We need them here. There's a great quality of life in Nova Scotia. Uh, we want to get them plugged in. One of the, I, was, I was speaking with somebody on the Halifax Commons uh, a few weeks ago, and she was telling me, you know, it costs a lot to live here. So they co may come from a country where the costs of living are lower. They come here, they're much higher. Mm -hmm. And unless they can get plugged into a, a meaningful uh, job where they can actually make a living and, and pay their bills, um, it's going to be hard for them to stay. So we're, we're focused on getting people here and keeping them in the province because we have lots of opportunities for them right here. Uh, obviously, one of the, the keys for people staying in any province is having somewhere to live. And I know a lot of provinces and municipalities have brought in measures to deal with short-term rentals, Airbnb, Verbo, and, and your government is looking at doing something like that uh, coming soon. There are, uh, is a commitment here in, in the fall economic statement from the federal government to uh, deny the deduction of expenses on federal taxes uh, from, from homeowners who use their properties for short-term rentals in areas where there are municipal or provincial restrictions. Now, they say this could add 30,000 units to the housing supply. Uh, I don't know if that is too optimistic or not, but what is your sense uh, on this measure and how effective something like this could be in terms of opening up short-term rentals for more long-term housing solutions for people? Well, the, there's no question the economics are skewed towards short-term rentals. People can make a lot more money in a lot less time with short-term rentals, but it, it's becoming, it has become a problem, um, even in rural areas of this province, where short-term rentals have taken housing off the market for people uh, who need it to work here. Um, so those measures, they will likely work in tandem with one that we recently introduced, which is a, a, an annual registration tax uh, for short-term rental properties. And 
the the tax is much higher in the urban areas uh, mm. because I think the the issue is more acute in the urban areas, like in Halifax. How, how big a challenge is this, though, in the overall housing challenge picture, Minister? And like, is this is hammering Airbnb and hammering Verbo, you know, through tax policies and registration of fees? I, I mean, how much of the problem can 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 measures like those solve, in your view? Well, in, in times, and they weren't that long ago, um, Airbnb was helping the tourism industry here. Right. Uh, in an area where tourism is very seasonal, these properties suddenly made the economics work to provide more accommodations in areas of the province that couldn't support a hotel year-round. But suddenly, a few years later, we find ourselves in a world where housing is in great shortage. Uh, people, our, our employers need places locally for people to live. And we have properties that are short-term rentals that are no longer available to people. So um, it's the reality is for the collective good, we need more long-term rentals and we need to make sure the economics uh, support that. Um, short-term rentals certainly help in some aspects of the economy, but uh, we, need, we need housing. And to get housing, we need places for people to live so they can go to work to build the housing. Minister, just as a final question, uh, I'm an Atlantic Canadian myself, and I know the budget of my home province of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, significantly uh, high percentage of it historically has been federal transfers. I know that's the situation in Nova Scotia. When you look at the deficit projections by the government, and you look at the debt servicing costs now exceeding 10 cents uh, on the dollar of every dollar they take in, are you worried at all uh, about uh, an austerity situation down the road where, where maybe transfers uh, to provinces could be affected because of a deteriorating fiscal situation at the national level? Well, I'm actually, at this point in time, I'm actually more worried about individuals in this country that are trying to live in a world with, uh, with, with high interest rates, um, higher costs of living, um, and a carbon tax that is increasing the cost of food, it's increasing the cost to build housing, and it's, it's increasing the cost of home heating. Uh, and although the government, the federal government has taken measures to remove it from oil heating, it's still in other forms of heating. So right. we would have liked to see them get rid of that because uh, that's something that people don't need right now. Nova Scotia Finance Minister Alan McMaster, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Take care. This is about housing. It is about supply, supply, supply. We're at a time when people cannot afford to find a place to call home. And if you've got a home, people are living in fear that they're going to lose it. It now takes 25 years to save up for a down payment in Toronto. You used to pay off a mortgage in that time. It's definitely a slimmed-down document compared to recent years past, but it does include some new housing measures. The big headline, the top-line number, is $15 billion in new loans for the construction of rental apartments, but that doesn't start flowing until 2025. There's also an additional $1 billion to help build affordable housing, also not starting until 2025. There's a new mortgage charter for banks to follow when dealing with at-risk mortgage renewals, and the federal government is cracking down on people profiting from short-term rentals like Airbnbs. Okay, for more on all of this, I'm joined now by Don Iveson, the former mayor of Edmonton, and Jennifer Keysman, the former chief planner for the city of Toronto. They're both well-versed on this and both part of the task force for housing and climate backed by the Clean Economy Fund, a charitable foundation. So thank you both for joining us. Jennifer Keysman, let's start with you. The government really wants to move the needle on housing. Did they do that in this economic statement? Well, I do think what we've seen today needs to be taken in the context of momentum that is building. Let's put it that way. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it is part of momentum that's building that we started with the Housing Accelerator Fund, which continues to be a really significant initiative that is inspiring municipalities to take the obstacles that are currently in the way of building new housing out of the way. So that remains in place. Some of the success stories related to the Housing Accelerator Fund were uh, really touted in the context of this economic statement, reinforcing that they will continue to be a critical part of what is unfolding around housing. Look, $15 billion for low-interest loans for the building of rental housing is nothing to turn your nose up at. That's significant. Right. We know right now that for developers, the math simply doesn't work to be building new rental housing. So that is really a significant initiative to move the needle to bring new 
rental product onto the market because we know that there's a rental shortage across the entire country. Right, and, and Don Iveson, uh, that uh, stacks on top of the removing of the GST on purpose-built rentals earlier in the year, of course, a, a tax break that was also expanded to co-op housing today. So, so what's your sense on, on what these measures, combined with what we've seen in the past few weeks, uh, are going to do for the housing situation in the country? Well, I think these are several more positive steps forward that, again, build on some of the announcements from earlier this year. And I think there was, you know, a lot of expectation raising from the sector that uh, a significant move was needed. And $15 billion in additional um, preferential lending for purpose-built rental is, even though it doesn't flow for another year, that's a signal of confidence to the builders who aren't going to actually draw on that money if they, you know, start the permits and start the construction now. Because really what we're talking about is a a process of building that's going to take years, uh, and there's a lot of uh, lead time in that. So these indicative signals um, bringing confidence to the private sector to invest will help, and the additional measures to support the not-for-profit sector and the cooperative sector tidy up uh, some of the gaps from the, that were identified in some of the previous announcements. So I think we're on the right path here, but I still think we're hopefully building towards a much more significant significant uh, move in the budget in the spring for the federal government to support the creation of yet more uh, not-for-profit and public housing at scale, because that, that's going to be needed to, to actually inject the supply for people who can't afford to participate in the market, even if there are more market units. We're way behind there as a country, and though this is a promising step forward, I think there's more to do yet. Uh, Jennifer Keysmat, one of the other measures here is, is a, uh, a statement of intention, I guess it will come in the budget, to deny uh, tax deductions for people who use a home for Airbnb or VRBO, the short-term rentals in areas uh, where municipalities or provinces have cracked down on that. They think there's about 30,000 units that could be affected by this. How realistic do you think that is, that, that denying people sort of uh, expense deductions at the federal tax level can free up that kind of supply? Well, look, um, a lot of public policy, one of the challenges is that um, until you implement it, you don't know whether it's going to have the intended outcome. And sometimes right. you get unintended outcomes. But at the end of the day, we know that if there can be a way to take some of those uh, homes that are currently only being used part of the time by tourists and by travelers, and we can take those homes that are sitting empty and we can use those homes as homes and get families living in those homes, that that would be good for addressing the housing shortage that we have in this country. And those homes are already built. So in ensuring that there are mechanisms in place that will bring those homes back into the housing supply funnel as opposed to being treated as uh, rental units for short-term travelers or really as hotel rooms, that's really, that's, it's not something to be understated in terms of it's significant because if the financial disincentive to using a home for Airbnb is successful, you will see tens of thousands of new homes coming on the market in a very short period of time. That's the right. quickest way that you can get a family into a home when that family does not yet have a home today. Right. So, so Don Ivison, I saw you nodding your head. I, I don't know what the situation is uh, in Edmonton where you were mayor or what the regulations might be there on this, but do you think that this is enough of a financial disincentive to force these sometimes very lucrative properties uh, onto the market for the more stable monthly rents? I think it's an astute move on the federal government's part not to move into trying to regulate this space when you've got municipalities right. and provinces who are closer to it actually flexing that regulatory authority. But saying that they're going to back them on the enforcement, I think that's helpful and collaborative. And I think uh, closing sort of the preferential tax treatment for this category of investment sends a strong signal that the land rush is over in the short-term rental space. And even though we're talking about less than 1% of the needed supply to tackle this crisis, you know, it's, it's a fraction of the public housing that's still needed and it's a fraction of a fraction of the market supply that's needed. But the folks who thought they could uh, make hay 
in this area with huge returns for not that much work, uh, we're propping up prices in a lot of markets where housing is at a premium already. So if this cools that off, I think, along with the regulatory measures that are uh, that are coming from provinces and from cities, I think that that will help not just restore some of the supply, as Jennifer was describing, but perhaps cool some of the speculative furor over making a quick buck on short-term rentals. Okay, uh, just as a final point, I want to get your reaction to what appears to be the balancing act that Christian Freeland is, uh, is, uh, is uh, attempting here to offer some relief to deal with these urgent cost of living crisis, but not do anything to kind of inflame things in a way that, that, that becomes inflationary. And there's warnings there about the fiscal track they're facing, and you can see the debt servicing cost is now over 10% of total revenue. So Jennifer Keesman, when you look at the needs and what you're calling for, uh, for action on housing, do you get worried a little bit when you see where things are going with the fiscal uh, space at the federal level in terms of their ability to respond? Well, look, anyone who says they're not worried isn't paying really close attention because we are in um, exceptional territory right now for a whole variety of reasons, including um, decades and decades of, of undersupply and inflation that has hit the borrowing for large construction projects in a really significant way, which has reinforced the lack of building of new, of new supply. So I think that, um, you know, it is... It is a moment for acting uh, on the one hand boldly and decisively and on the right. other hand with some certainty because um, now is not really a moment to be trying new things. And I think we actually saw that in this economic statement. We saw a revamping of successful programs that do not work with higher interest rates right. in order to recalibrate and make them work today. And I think that's it's um, it's not bold, but it's it's probably the right approach. Don, I was in a, a quick twenty seconds from you. I, I wonder how worried you are about their ability to respond to this based on where their finances are headed. Well, I think the housing crisis is the biggest economic headwind this country is facing. I think in the medium to long term, it's a bigger problem even than interest rates. So I think we're, as a country, going to have to put uh, you know, our values to the test and say, is allowing, are allowing people to sleep rough and families to go without housing from newcomers to seniors uh, an acceptable price to pay for a fiscal anchor? And, and I think in a test of values... Uh, you know, that may be what the next election is about. So I understand the bind that uh, that uh, Minister Freeland is in, but uh, I think there's still more to do on housing. Okay. Uh, I appreciate your, your time and your insights. Uh, thank you, Don Iveson and Jennifer Kiesman. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.